Now, before we jump into chapter number two, I want you to look on your notes. I've got a little introduction material for you. You know, as I began to study the book of Ruth, I began to realize that uh, there's a hundred ways that you can divide the book of Ruth and, and outline it. And the way we've chosen to do it is geographically. Uh, chapter number one finds us in the land of Moab. Chapter number two finds us in the fields of Boaz. Chapter number three finds us at the feet of Boaz. And chapter number four finds us in the heart and home of Boaz. But I've also become uh, acquainted with the thought that each of these chapters also uh, represents an example of a law of God being enacted in the lives of his people. If you were to look in chapter number one, you would find the law of chastisement being exacted in the life of Naomi and her family. If you were to look in chapter number three, you would find the, uh, the I say a law, the, the cultural and uh, social practice of uh, Ruth laying herself at Boaz's feet and uh, sort of a, a marriage proposal, as it were. Chapter number four uh, shows us the redemption of, uh, of plot of land, but also shows us the redemption of this little Moabite girl. Chapter number two centers around an Old Testament law concerning God's provision uh, for those that were downcast and downtrodden. And uh, I believe we'll be helped if we try to understand this law. It'll give us an idea of some of the uh, truths that are conveyed here. So on your notes in front of you, I want you to notice these two passages of Scripture, and we'll read them together. In Leviticus chapter 19, this law is mentioned for the first time. Now, this is given to the children of Israel. And it says this, that when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. And thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, this is uh, reiterated. We know that Deuteronomy is the book of the repetition of the law, and so... Uh, God uh, restates this for us in verse number 19 of Deuteronomy chapter 24. He says, When thou cuttest down thine harvest in thy field, and hast forgot a sheaf in the field, thou shalt not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thine hands. When thou beatest thine olive tree, thou shalt not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. When thou gatherest the grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterwards. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore I command thee to do this thing. You know, I feel like we have sort of a cultural misunderstanding about Jews in biblical times. Now, there's no question that Jews uh, understood that they were God's elect people. There's no question that the Jews uh, had ceremonial laws concerning not uh, marrying and uh, not uh, having too much fellowship with those that were not Jews. There's no question that Gentiles were viewed as unclean to the Jew. But I think sometimes we get the idea that Jews had a harsh attitude towards Gentiles. Certainly that could be the case, and you do find some examples of that. But what we find in, in the law of the gleaners is that God had a very gracious attitude towards those that were without the covenant and the promises that God had made to his elect people. In fact, ever since the children of Israel left the land of Egypt, God gave them commandments of kindness towards the lives and towards the, the relationships that they had with Gentile people. And one of those laws was this law that's set in front of us. Now, most of us, I mean, we, we read it, we understand at least to a degree what's being said here, but I believe a little clarification might help us. Basically, what God is telling the children of Israel is, Whenever you go to glean in your field, whenever you go to reap your harvest, I have set aside a portion of that field and a portion of that provision that it might feed those that don't have land to till, feed those that have no claim in the land of Israel, feed those that have fallen on difficult times and have no one to care for them. Now let me say that this is a picture of grace. God didn't have to do this, and those people didn't do anything to earn this provision. But God, through His grace, afforded this privilege 
to these gleaners. Now, there were two types of uh, provisions in this law. I want you to note them with me. There was a provision through the nature of the field. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I want you to notice what he says in Leviticus 19.9. He says, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field. Now, God's not saying here that you need to map your fields out in a big circle. But rather what God is saying is this, and if you've ever uh, bought portions of land or done anything with surveying, you know that rarely does land come in big squares. Uh, the natural boundaries that would have been in that day, which would have been the markers when they purchased land, might be rivers or creeks or trees or, or, or uh, you know, woodland or something of that sort. And so oftentimes they would get land that was misshapen or shapen in a strange way. And what God is saying is this. He's saying when you set out your boundaries to reap in your field, those extra areas that are on the outside, don't reap those, leave those intact so that the poor and the widow and the stranger and the fatherless can go and glean those. So there was a provision through the nature of the fields, but then there was a provision through the neglect of the field hands. And you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, notice carefully what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 24. It says, when thou cuttest down thine harvest in the field, in thy field, and hast forgotten a sheaf in the field, Thou shalt not go again to fetch it. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. Look at verse 20. When thou beatest thine olive tree, thou shalt not go over the bows again. It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. Verse 21. And when thou gatherest the grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterwards. If we're not careful, we'll misunderstand what's being said in Leviticus chapter 19. Uh, God says in, in uh, cha- verse 10 of chapter 19 the book of Leviticus, he says, Thou shalt not glean thy vineyard. But God's not saying don't go and pick grapes out of your own vineyard. Rather, what he is saying is this, that when they were reaping in the, the field, when they were cutting down the sheeps, if a worker inadvertently and through neglect left a sheaf in the field, they were not to go back and comb over what was there, rather leave it there so that the poor, the stranger, the widow, the fatherless could go and could benefit from that. When they would beat their olive trees, of course they didn't cut down an olive tree every year when uh, the uh, crop was in. Instead what they'd do, they'd take big old long sticks and they'd go along and they would beat the limbs of these olive trees. When they would do that, the ripe olives would fall out on the ground. God says, once you've done that once, don't go over it a second time because I'm using what's left in that tree to provide for the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, and the poor. And he says, once you've gone over your grapes and picked out the clusters and uh, harvested everything that you can get out of it, don't go back over it and pick every little grape that you can find. Only go over it one time. So, in other words, God had provided, just simply through the boundaries, through the geography of the land, a means of providing for these downcast people, but also through the neglect of these field hands. Now, you say, preacher, what in the world does that have to do with me? Well, let me show you something. If we understand this as a picture of grace, then we understand this, that you and I as Gentiles, we have no right to the promises of God. But let me tell you something. Calvary was not a mistake. The church was not an audible that God called. God had already built into the plan of redemption an allowance for you and I as Gentiles to be brought into the covenants and promises of God simply through the nature of the plan of redemption. It did not catch God surprise uh, by surprise when Calvary happened. No, God had planned that, and uh, it was according to the providence of God when that happened. But... We also understand this as we study the book of Romans, that you and I as Gentiles, one of the things that has facilitated us coming to know Christ is the neglect of the field hands. You say, what do you mean, preacher? The neglect of the Jews. Their Messiah came to them. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And they with wicked hands and wicked hearts slew the Prince of Glory. And because of that, you and I have come to know Jesus Christ. The gospel, never forget, is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So because of their rejection, because of their neglect, as it were, because when they came to reap the promises of God, they left the most precious promise God ever gave laying there in the field. You and I as Gentiles have the privilege to go along and pick it up and have new life in Jesus Christ. We see not only these two types, but this law is provided for three types of people, the stranger, the fatherless, 
and the widow. I'm, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time, but let me just say that all three of those picture the sinner. We're strangers from the covenant and promises of God. Before we're saved, we have a father. The devil is our father. That's what Christ said to the Pharisees. You're of your father, the devil, but he's not much of a father to us. And then we have no one to care for us, just like a widow might be, especially in this day where there wouldn't be any kind of social programs or anything to provide. She was literally at the mercy of those around us. She was helpless, and as sinners, we were helpless without God. Then I want you to notice, and we'll move on to our outline, that this law is exemplified in three different types of crops. And this is significant. The first is wheat. Now, we know what wheat is used for. We know it wasn't used to, you know, make your Wheaties back then. Wheat was used to make bread. This pictures for us uh, that Christ is the bread of life. That was the first crop that they might benefit from would be Christ as the bread of life. Let me say that you don't experience anything of God apart from Christ. Sinner has no relationship with God except through the Son, Jesus Christ. No man cometh unto the Father, Christ said, but by me. Once we've accepted Christ, then we get to enjoy the oil, the olive oil, which is a type and picture of the Holy Spirit and His anointing and consecrating capacity and and His illuminating capacity as well. And you see that type carried all through the Bible. Of course, what's the first thing happens to a believer once they accept Christ as their Savior? Instantaneously, the Holy Ghost takes up residence in their life. And never leaves them. And then finally, the grapes. And the grapes would have been used to make wine. Wine is a picture of fruitfulness. In John chapter number 15, Christ said that I am the vine, my father is the husbandman, ye are the branches. He said, if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. And he's talking about a vineyard, a vine. But also, wine represents joy, and the joy of the Lord, and the joy of the Holy Ghost. And you know, that's the progression. That's what happens. A sinner accepts Christ and his sacrifice on Calvary. He is then indwelt by the Holy Spirit instantaneously. And inasmuch as he'll walk in the Holy Spirit, he'll experience the joy of the Lord and the fruitfulness that results from it. So all of these things are significant. And you say, preacher, why did we spend that time? Because this is the reason that Ruth is in the field. Ruth wouldn't be in the field if it wasn't for this provision. If it wasn't for the law of God that gave her a right to be in that field, she would have never been there. And you know what we find? We find that the law of God has led her to Boaz. What a beautiful picture uh, of what happened to you and I. The book of Galatians says that the law is our schoolmaster to what? To bring us unto Christ. We wouldn't have found him on our own. We would have thought we were good enough. We would have thought we could make it to heaven on our own. But the law of God shows you and I that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And Christ is the end of the law unto righteousness to everyone that believeth in him. So let's jump into chapter number 2. That gives us a little context as to what Ruth is doing, why she's in the field. She's a Moabite girl. She's a widow. She has no one to help her. And so she goes out into the field. To glean. Chapter number two divides itself roughly into three portions, and they follow as thus. The first seven verses present to us the reaping in the field. The next uh, few verses, verses eight through seventeen, show us the recompense of the farmer, and that's Boaz. Boaz comes to visit his field. And then verses eighteen through twenty three show for us the report that Naomi or that Ruth brings back to her family. The only family she's got is Naomi. And so she brings home the things that Boaz has given her. So let's take a few moments and consider these things. I want us to read the first three verses. The Bible says this, And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. I like the way God says this. And her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. Can we not see in these first three verses the hand of God at work? When we closed out chapter number 1, the Bible says that they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. God had already been working in their desperate situation. You know, oftentimes when we think there's no hope, that's the very moment that God is working. And we find that there is a preparation that has been taking place. Long before Ruth ever knew who Naomi was, long before Ruth and Orpah ever met Malon and Chilion, long before Naomi and Elimelech left the land of bread to go to Moab in the place of barrenness and forgottenness, long before that ever happened, 
There were two young men by the name of Elimelech and Boaz that were kindred one to another. It's interesting to me, and, I, and I, you know, as I prayed and got ready for tonight, I asked the Lord to help me to say only that which I needed to say, because there's so much to say about this, it's easy to get carried away. But isn't it interesting that it's not, Ruth is not any kin to Boaz. It's Naomi who's kin to Boaz. Doesn't this picture for us our Boaz? We're Gentiles, but we've come to know a Jewish Boaz, a Jewish kinsman by the name of Jesus Christ. He was, it behooved him, the Bible said, to be made like unto his brethren. God was already at work in their life. It's fascinating to consider the narrative that's set before us. Because whenever Naomi is sitting there, she has no thought of Boaz in verse number 1. She may have not thought of Boaz in many, many years. In fact, it's very likely that she had not. She may not know if Boaz is still alive. She may not know if Boaz would still even care about her. Ruth does not know who Boaz is yet, but the hand of God is moving and stirring. And whoever it was that God used to pin this book down for us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, before we ever get to the fields, he says, I want you to notice that that God already had a Boaz prepared. God's always doing something, even when we're doing nothing. (laughs) God was preparing. We see the preparation in verse 1. We see the instigation of God's providence in verse number 2. Ruth looked at uh, Naomi and said to her, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose side I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Naomi said unto her, Go, my daughter. Isn't it interesting that God was working and moving, but he did not do this uh, apart from their own choices, but rather in tandem with their own choices. God was doing something in their hearts and lives. And I'm not going to pretend to pry into the working of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. I understand He didn't indwell folks and He didn't work in the way that He does now. But I just happen to believe that uh, God said something to Ruth's heart that day that said, today's the day you need to go glean. Now's the moment that you need to move and to go. There's no telling the unconscious preparation of God and instigation of God that goes on in our lives. There's no telling the things that we do. We don't give a thought to it, but God is orchestrating and moving things around. And Ruth says, let's go, or she says, I'm going to go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And then we notice the coordination of God's providence. Look at verse 3. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hat. Now, you know what, you know how we would say that today? We would say she happened. She happened to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz. Now, you and I understand that nothing just happens. This was a divine appointment of God. But we understand this, that in Ruth's heart and mind, she didn't go there looking for Boaz. She didn't go there looking for Boaz, but hey, God planned on meeting her there looking for her. What a picture of how we were found in our sin sickness Let me tell you something, there's a lot of debating and arguing and fussing and nonsense that goes back and forth over whether I chose God or God chose me. Can I just say this, that I did choose God. There's no question. I did choose God. I'm also aware that if it wasn't for the influence of the Word of God in my heart and life and the presence of the gospel, I wouldn't have even known I needed to choose God. And let me say this, I did choose God, but I don't think my choosing God took him by surprise. It was Ruth's hap to light on that field, but it wasn't just a a happenstance thing to God. God had coordinated this moment. You say, how do we know that, preacher? Well, we know it from the next verse. She could have gone out on any day. In fact, we have no reason to believe that Ruth had ever set foot in this field before, and yet on this very day, something happens. We see not only the hand of God at work, but we see the heart of Boaz expressed to us. Look at verse number 4. And behold, I like the way the Bible says that. That's God's way of saying, would you look at what happened? (laughs) Would you, behold, would you look at what happened? And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. In other words, when she is at her lowest, God shows up. And Boaz comes down to the field. Now this tells us something about the heart that he has. Here's why. Boaz was not looking for Ruth. Boaz did not know that Ruth was there. But Boaz had a heart for the work that belonged to him. You know why he went to Bethlehem? Uh, or went from Bethlehem out to those fields, because they were his fields. And he was interested in what was going on in his fields. Can I say that to this very day, we need to keep in mind that God's interested in the work that's going on in his fields. 
He's interested in that work. Hey, when you become a fellow laborer with God, when you endeavor upon sharing the gospel and working for the cause of Christ and giving your life uh, to, to the will of God, God's interested in that. And you're casting your lot in with something that the God of all creation is interested in. He still cares what happens in his ministry. Not only was his heart for the work, but his heart was for the workers. He shows up, and I, I mean, you know... How many of us, we wish we could have had a boss like Boaz? You know, most of the time when, when you worked and when I worked and the boss walked in, you was thinking, oh, man, here they come. But what happens? Look what it says. Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, the Lord be with you. Man, what a greeting to get from your boss. The Lord be with you. Let Jehovah prosper what you're doing here today. And they look back, and, and let me just say this, that a Christian testimony, it's good for worker morale, because they look back and they say, the Lord bless thee. We see that Boaz is not only interested in the work, but he's interested in the workers. Now, that encourages me, because inasmuch as I make up my mind to serve God, God's interested in my life and what takes place in it. We may feel discouraged sometimes. We may feel like we can't do it. We may feel like nothing we're doing is mattering. But understand that the God of all heaven is interested enough in you that he'll come down and visit his field sometimes and bless the efforts of his workers. It was a word of humility. And the reason is because she had every right to be there. But let me tell you something. When she approached the field of Boaz, she didn't approach in haughtiness or pride. What a picture of the sinner. Let me tell you something. No, no sinner ever comes to God bargaining. What did the old songwriter Augustus Top Lady say? In my hand, no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. A humble and a contrite uh, heart the Lord will not despise. When she came to Boaz's field, she didn't come demanding. Instead, she came humble, asking for permission. Though she already had it through the law, she wasn't pleading to the law. She was pleading to the benevolence of Boaz. Then notice a third thing. Her honor is noted. Look at the end of verse number 7. It says, So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. Now, commentators are sort of divided on this. And here's why. Because some people believe that the fact that she was in the house is denoted because that's where she was at the moment of this conversation. I can certainly see how that would be the case. But the thrust of the statement that the uh, man that's over the reapers is trying to get across to Boaz and what God is trying to get across to us is that she has been diligent in her duty. Could we put it this way? And I don't think that, that our efforts mean anything to God when we come as a sinner, and I don't believe that's what's being implied here. But her, her honor, her diligence was a, a good indication of her sincerity. In other words, she didn't come to the field to goof off. She came to the field to glean. And I'll tell you this, I don't believe anybody gets saved except those that want to be saved and those that are serious about being saved. And, I, I mean, I could sit and fuss about people popping bubble gum and kids giggling. All, I'm not interested in that. Let me just say this, that God knows the heart. God knows the heart. And I believe that when a sinner comes to know Christ, I believe it's because he's sincere in that pursuit. Not because he is striving in that pursuit, but because he is sincere in that pursuit. You know, it could have been Boaz could have looked at the man that was over the reapers and said, well, what's she doing in the house if she needs that wheat so much? No, it was just a symbol of her sincerity and her diligence in this matter. So we see the handmaiden's testimony. Now, Ruth and Boaz have not spoken to each other as of yet. And it's not Ruth that speaks to Boaz first, but rather it is uh, Boaz uh, that looks and, and speaks to Ruth first. And I believe that's significant because I, I believe God spoke, speaks to the sinner first through the Word of God. And notice the, the uh, interaction that takes place. We see the recompense of the farmer. And the first thing that Boaz says, he shows care and concern and interest in her. Look at verse number 8. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not, my daughter? Go not to glean in another field, neither go from thence, but abide here fast by my maidens. You know, the first thing that he speaks to her is a word of permission. In other words, she doesn't know what Boaz is about to say uh, 
to her. She doesn't know if Boaz is going to condemn her or forbid her from the fields, though he has no legal right to do it. Certainly, no one could have stopped him from doing that if he wished to. She doesn't know if Boaz is going to look and say, Hey, uh, girl, your apron's a little too full. You need to drop some of that wheat. Uh, you're not welcome to take it. But what's the first thing Boaz says? Boaz looks at Ruth and says, I tell you what, you just stay here a while. Can I put it this way? She, he looks at Ruth and says, you're welcome here. You're welcome. So why does that mean something, preacher? Because that's, that's what the sinner receives when he comes humbly and sincerely before an almighty God. God looks at him and says, hey, I've just been waiting on you to arrive. We know this is significant on many levels, and in a dispensational sense, it is significant because God's redemptive plan for the Gentiles is not a fleeting, passing thing, but God intends for those that come to know Christ to be on the same level and standing as the Jews throughout all eternity as we are uh, grafted into that uh, olive tree and so on and so forth, and there's much that could be said about it, but the word of encouragement that I took is that I'm wanted in the presence of God. I'm not a burden in the presence of God. We are commanded all through the New Testament to what? Come boldly before the throne of grace. We have boldness and access through faith in Jesus Christ. So God wants us in His presence. We see a word of permission. Then notice the next verse gives us a word of protection. It says in verse number 9, Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? would have been a very scary thing if you'd been a young, pretty girl like Ruth out in that field with no one to look after you. But Boaz, you see, she didn't have to worry because the one with the authority had already given her protection. You know, there's a big difference between uh, power and authority. You understand that, right? We don't have any power in and of ourselves. We're weak, and we'll always be weak on this side of the grave. But we do have an authority through Jesus Christ. Can I give you an example? I've given this before as i preached, but if you were to uh, go out in the middle of the street and a big 18-wheeler was bearing down on you 60, 70, 80 miles an hour, and if you were to go out and stand in the middle of that street and to hold your hand up, that for that uh, 18-wheeler could run right through you and not even blink, not even stop. But now if a state trooper was to go out and lift his hand, he's flesh and blood just like you and me, there's no difference in the biological makeup of us. But as he stands there, he's a symbol of authority. And though that trucker might not stop for me or you, uh, he is going to stop for that state trooper. You know why? Because of all of the power that that state trooper represents. That's authority. Ruth couldn't watch over herself. She couldn't protect herself. But the word of Boaz meant something. Let me tell you something. If it was up to us to save ourselves and to stay saved, we'd be in a sorry position. We don't have the power to be the kind of Christian that we need to be. But our Christianity is not dependent upon our power. It's dependent upon the promise of the Word of God. His authority and His Word mean something. There's a word of protection, but there's a word of provision given at the end of that verse. He says this, And when thou art athirst, go unto the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. In other words, uh, he says to her, you have a steady supply of water at your beck and call. Is this not a picture for us of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? We don't just get a drink of that water. The well is inside of us. That's what Christ told the, the woman at the well. You drink the water that I shall give you, and it shall be in you a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Uh, it's not to say we won't ever have to get another drink. We do have to get another drink. We have to get refreshed sometimes. We have to get surrendered and allow our will to be buckled under to the will of the Holy Ghost. But we never have to get re-saved, and we never have to get re-indwelt, and we never have to get reborn again. Because once we're born again, there's a well of water in us springing up into everlasting life. So we see in this passage the care of Boaz. We see the question of Ruth in verse number 10. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? That's a very interesting question on a lot of levels. And I preached on it before. I could preach on it a bunch because that's such a beautiful thought. Why have I found grace? But you know what Ruth was saying? She was basically saying, I'm no different than anyone else out here. I don't deserve this care that you're showing me. 
But that in and of itself is a beautiful definition of grace, isn't it? Because that's exactly what grace is. The truth is, there wasn't really an answer to give to Ruth. And Boaz does give her an answer, and we'll look at it here in a moment. But the answer that Boaz gives her doesn't really answer the question, because nothing that Boaz says about her is of any benefit to Boaz. He's going to describe how she took care of Naomi. He's going to describe how she forsook her people. He's going to describe how she's trusting in the God of Israel. But not a bit of that is of any help to Boaz. So in other words, Boaz isn't doing it because of who Ruth is. Boaz is doing it because of who Boaz is. Therein lies the secret to grace. Grace isn't about who you are. Grace is about who he is. Grace isn't about what you've got to offer God, if you, if you had anything to offer God, it wouldn't be grace. It's grace because we have nothing to offer God. It's grace because in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. It's grace because there's nothing in me and of me that's worth redeeming apart from God's love and care. So she asked this question. Well, what is Boaz's answer? We see the commendation of Boaz in verse number 11. And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother in the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. That's a mouthful. But there are three basic things, I've already mentioned them, that, that Boaz points out. He points out her fealty to Naomi, her, her friendliness, her love and loyalty of Naomi. He also points out her forsaking of her people and her land. But then he points out her faith. Now, this is important. Let me tell you why. Because I believe that Boaz is speaking to her condition backwards. But we have the narrative of Ruth from the other direction. We have it from the beginning of her story back to this point. You say, why is that important? Here's why. Because if you were to take them in that order, that as, then as the type carries through, one might suggest that our loyalty earns us some place with God. Or that our uh, forsaking of something earns us some place with God. But if we understand that all these things are just the byproduct of her faith, then we understand that the reason she stands there today is first and foremost because she put her faith and her trust under the wings of Jehovah, the God of Israel. As we've preached on it on Sunday mornings, we've said several times that when Ruth uh, left Moab, she wasn't leaving for Naomi, she was leaving for Bethlehem. And in a sense, she wasn't even leaving for Bethlehem because Bethlehem had no, nothing to hold for her. She was a Gentile. She was a Moabite. When she left Moab, she left because she trusted the God of Israel more than the God of Moab. So these three things are denoted. And Boaz says, that's why you stand here in front of me. He's not saying you've done these things and they're a great benefit to me. But what he's saying is, Ruth, the reason I've showed grace to you is because you're here at this moment. And the reason you're here at this moment is because of the decisions that you've made in your life. We have the commendation of Boaz. I want you to notice the confidence of Ruth. Rather than causing her to recoil in fright, it causes her to approach in faith. What does she say in verse number 13? Then she said, Let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for that thou hast comforted me, and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like unto one of thine handmaidens. Now, what's she asking? I spent a little time studying on this. Because what, what is she asking for? She says, Let me now find favor in thy sight. Some commentators have tried to uh, get around this by saying that uh, if you were to look at this tense or this verb or switch it around this way and uh, do everything you can to correct the Bible, because <laughs> that's what they mean when they say that, that what she's really trying to say is, I've already found favor in thy sight. But here's the problem. That's not what she says. She doesn't say, Boaz, I found favor in your sight. Great. No, she's asking for something. What is she asking for? I believe the answer is found in the next few verses. Look what it says in verse number 14. We see the confidence of Ruth, and I'm going to revisit it, so don't worry. But we see the certification of Ruth. You see, Boaz gives her what she's asking for, and through what Boaz gives her, we can understand what she was asking for. And Boaz said unto her, At mealtime come thou hither. 
and eat of the bread and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers, and he reached her parched corn, and she did eat and was sufficed and left. You know what she's asking when she says, let me find favor in thy sight? She's saying, Boaz, can I get to know you a little better? Boaz, can I spend a little time with you? I don't mean that in any kind of vulgar or, or off-putting way. That's what she's asking. She's saying, Boaz, you've already been good to me. I'd like to get to know you a little better. Boaz, I'd like to spend a little more time with you. Boaz, can I sit at your table? You know, in as much as we stay in the will of God, and in as much as we are yielded to the Holy Spirit, you know what our greatest desire is? It's not the money God might bless us with. It's not the homes that God might bless us with or the cars. It's not the popularity or the prestige. You know the thing that the heart of Ruth truly desired? She wanted to know Boaz better. She wanted to sit at his table. She wanted to fellowship with him. And what she's asking, and rather than her recoiling in fright, she approaches in faith and she says, Boaz, you've been so good to me, can I just get to know you a little better? Boaz says, of course you can, because that's how a love story goes. If, if he had said, no, you're ugly, get away from me, we wouldn't be sitting here tonight. But that's how a love story goes. So he says, of course you can. And in verse number 14, we find her at his table. Now, this is interesting. Here's why. Because you have to understand there are two things that have been asked here. From Ruth's perspective, Ruth has said, can I sit at your table and spend a little time with you? But from Boaz's perspective, one of the things Ruth is asking is, Boaz, will you be seen with me? And so he says, of course you can sit at my table. She says this, though I be not like unto one of thy handmaidens. You know what she's saying? She's saying, can I have a seat at your table even though I'm not as pretty as the other girls? Now, I think she's prettier than the other girls, but no girl thinks she's as pretty as the other girls. And so she says, I'm not as pretty as the other handmaidens. I'm not as desirable as the rest of them. I mean, I, I'm the, the rags that I'm wearing, the history that I've got, the baggage that I've got, I don't deserve a place at your table, Boaz, but can I sit there? And what does Boaz say? He says, of course, honey, you can sit with me. Can I put it this way? He says, I'd be proud to be seen with you. And you know how he's seen with her and how she's seen with him? There are three things that are mentioned. I believe they're significant. What's the first thing he says? He says, come thou hither and eat of the bread. It's a picture of the death of Jesus Christ. You know how we identify with Jesus Christ? First and foremost, we acknowledge we're a sinner and we need Calvary to redeem us and save us. We partake in his death. We acknowledge that our old man is worthless and, and filthy and, and putrefied and worthless and, and it needs to be crucified and we partake in his death. What's the second thing uh, or in his life and in his death? The second thing that's mentioned is the vinegar. Uh, this also pictures his death for us. The bread is picturing for us the perfect life that he lived. The vinegar is picturing for us the death that he died for us. There's no question that when we see the word vinegar, you know what's awful? Can I make confession? Confession's good for the soul. When I read this, I wanted fish. I don't know why that is. I guess I'm just carnal, but I read that about vinegar. I thought, I'm going to get some Captain D's on the way home, you know? So if, if I light out of here soon when we get out, I'm just I'm going to get Captain D's. Don't be mad at me. The vinegar pictures for us uh, his suffering on the cross. When he was thirsty, he was offered vinegar. It was to mock him, and it pictures for us the suffering and bitterness of his death. And then this is interesting. She sat beside the, reachers, the, the reapers, and he reached her. That's good, good King James country language right there, isn't it? Reach me that. He reached her what? Parched corn. Now, if you've studied your Bible, you know that corn is a picture of the resurrection. Christ said this, that if, if a uh, colonel uh, falleth on, or that, that if, uh, let me say it right now, I don't want to misquote it, I probably will, but he said that, uh, that the colonel, when it falleth into the ground, if it doesn't die, it abideth alone. But if it dies, it brings forth many, many kernels. We know that's true. That's true of corn. That's all corn seeds are, it's just old corn. And Christ was picturing for us his resurrection, that through his death, burial, and resurrection, many would come to know Christ. So what is, how is she identifying with him? She is identifying with him through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. How do you and I publicly identify with Jesus Christ? 
we identify with him through baptism. Baptism is not necessary for salvation, but we identify with him through baptism. And oftentimes when the preacher baptizes, what will he say? Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. So it's significant. It foreshadows the commitment or the uh, testimony that the Christian has. Then I want you to notice the compassion of Boaz. Uh, Ruth leaves. She eats her fill. She's about to pop. She eats more than a lady should. And she gets up from the table. And she goes back. And Boaz looks over at the uh, at the reapers. And it says this in verse number 15. When she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and reproach her not. And let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her, and leave them that she may glean them, and rebuke her not. Now, if you're not careful, you'll you'll read over that instead of reading through it. This is why. Because Boaz is giving her something very special here. He does not say this to Ruth, but he says it to the reapers. Let me say that when you and I got born again, uh, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the hearts of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. We don't. The half hadn't even been told of the things that God has provided for us. The moment you and I got up from the foot of Calvary, God looked over to the angels of heaven and said, Hey, listen, I want you to give them something special in their life. And all of these promises of God that apply to us and that are there for our benefit, whereby we're made partakers of the divine nature, we couldn't even fathom the things that God has done for us. I'm convinced of this. God's done more for me in my life that I don't know about than he has that I do know about. Ain't no telling how many tragedies he's spared me from. Ain't no telling how many blessings that he has had me trip face, face forward in front of. God's been awful good to us. But what is it that he gives her? You see, law dictated and law determined that Ruth had a right to glean behind the reapers. Ruth had no business in the midst of the sheaves. But Boaz tells the reapers, I want you to let her get in the midst of the sheaves and rebuke her not. I I don't want her to wait until everything's been trampled down. I've got something special for her. The other handmaidens, uh, let them glean afterwards. But Ruth, let her get a little ahead. Let her get in the midst of the sheaves and let her glean some of that good corn. It's a picture for us that grace does things for us that the law never could. Law gave her a place behind the reapers, but grace gave her a place in the midst of the reapers. The significance of this is twofold. I believe it's significant dispensationally inasmuch as it it prefigures for us the inclusion of the Gentile into the covenants and promises of God. And the book of Romans gives us a lot of truth about that, that wild olive branch being grafted in uh, to to the domesticated or natural olive branch. And let me say that through grace... You and I have been given access to those promises of God. But I believe it's significant, too, because it uh, presents to us that the lost sinner is given a special place through grace that he never could have attained through law. Through the law, Ruth could have never got there, but I want you to notice three things. That the grace of Boaz, number one, gave her a place that the law could not take her. A position, if we can call it that. The law could only make you and I slaves and servants. But grace... Grace made us a son. Grace made us an heir and a joint heir with Christ. Oh, what a privilege that grace gives to you and I. Grace gave her a place the law could not take her. Grace gave her a provision the law could not give her. The law could never, I like this. Let me tell you something. I can preach whether I feel like it or not, but every once in a while I feel like preaching. Grace got her in that good corn. Grace didn't give her that old trampled up corn. Grace got her in the good corn. Grace is where God gives us his best. (laughs) Grace is where God gives us... When you come to Calvary, God's not giving you the old cast-off animal feed. God gave us his best through Jesus Christ. He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. I better move on or I'll, I'll get tore up. And then I want you to notice that grace gave her a prosperity that the law could not afford her. She got more through grace than the law would have allowed her. And we know this is true because of what it says in verse number 17. So she gleaned in the field until even and beat out that she, that she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't buy things in ephahs. 
I don't go down to Sam's Club and tell them load me up three EFAs of something. And so I had to study and find out what an EFA is. Well, uh, we have reason to believe that she probably had somewhere between 20 and 25 gallons of wheat. You say, what would you do with 20, 25 gallons of wheat? Well, if you were Ruth and Naomi, you'd be privileged to eat for five days on what she gleaned there. So how do we know that, preacher? Well, Exodus chapter 16 tells us that an omer, which is a tenth of an ephah, would be enough to feed a man for a day. So if she gets an ephah, which is ten omers, and an omer would feed a man for a day, and her and Naomi are both eating off of that, so you'd have to half her in two there, then that would give them enough to live off of and to eat off of for five days. You know, even in the details, God pictures grace for us. If you've studied numbers in the Bible, you know that the number five is identified with the idea of grace. And time and time again, you'll see five identified with grace in the Bible. I believe God's saying this, that grace is sufficient. His grace was sufficient for her. Boaz didn't say, get a handful here or there. He didn't say, get enough to do you through the night till you can come back tomorrow. See, grace didn't just do her for the moment. Grace did her for the long term. Let me say, when I got a taste of grace at Calvary, it, it wasn't a Band-Aid. It wasn't a temporary fix. It didn't just fill my belly for the moment, but it satisfied. It was enough. So she goes back home. She goes through the door, and uh, this is interesting. I want you to notice the report to the family. We're going to kind of move through it a little quick here. We want to be sure and finish up. But notice the bounty displayed in verse number 18. And she took it up and went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she brought forth and gave to her that she had reserved after she was sufficed. And her mother-in-law said unto her, Where hast thou gleaned today, and where wroughtest thou? Blessed be he that did take knowledge of thee. And she showed her mother-in-law with whom she had wrought, and said, The man's name with whom I wrought today is Boaz. Now, can I give you the, I hope it's okay, I want to give you the Hebrew of what Naomi said. Are you ready? Ruth came through the door with that big old ephah of, of barley, and Naomi said this, and you got to study it to really get She said, shoo, that's a lot of barley. <laughs> that's what she said. You, you can hear it in her voice. She says, where you been gleaning today? Whose field you been in today? Look at this mess of barley you've got. Where have you been, girl? Where'd you get all this from? There's an interesting phrase that's used here. It says in verse number 18, at the end of it, that Ruth gave to her that she had reserved after she was sufficed. This is not talking about the barley, but rather it's talking about the parched corn. When it says after she was sufficed, it's referring back to what it says uh, in verse number 14, where it says that she was sufficed and left. In other words, uh, Boaz just kept reaching her parched corn, and she ate till she was about to pop, and then, I, and she did what some of you ladies have done. I've seen you do it now. Take, wrap it up in a napkin, stuff it down in the purse, you know. She said, I'm gonna take this home to, to mama-in-law. Now why does that matter? Well, it matters for a lot of reasons. It matters dispensationally, uh, because the Jews as a people, will be resurrected nationally after the Gentiles, the church, has been resurrected in the rapture. Uh, as a nation, I know you've read about them dry bones in Ezekiel chapter 37, and where God is going to resurrect the nation of Israel. And I understand that there is a sense in which the nation of Israel has already been resurrected politically, but that's not what Ezekiel's talking about. Because God doesn't just raise those bones to live in secular Judaism. He raises them and he breathes life into them, and they live again. God's not talking in Ezekiel 37 about 1948. He's talking about the day that Zechariah talked about, where that a nation would be born in a day, and all those Jews will look on him whom they have pierced, and they'll believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's going to happen. They're going to partake in that national resurrection after you and I, we've partaked at the rapture in the bodily resurrection. But then it's significant for this reason. Here you have a, a Gentile bringing corn to a Jew. What a beautiful picture of the ministry that you and I have, particularly to God's chosen people in this day of grace. It wasn't Naomi that was sitting at that table. It was Ruth sitting there. 
But she brought her a taste so she could know how good Boaz was. You and I have a responsibility to go to the Jew that's lost in the darkness of Phariseeism, in the darkness of their law, and some of them in the darkness of their secular denial of anything religious. And you and I, we, we can get up from the table with a little parched corn, with a little good news about the resurrection in our pocket, take it back and say, hey, listen, I know you crucified him because you thought that he was a charlatan, but he raised the third day because he was the son. I know you rejected him because you'd rather have Caesar reign over you, uh, but he rose the third day because he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords and he is the Lord of glory. Now, I know you wasn't sitting at his table, but I've sat at his table. And just have a little taste here. Let me tell you how good he is. It's significant because of the bounty that's displayed. It's significant we see the benefactor denoted, verse number 19. She says, she's all a flutter, you know. She can tell, I mean... You know, something happened out in the field. You know, she can tell. This this ain't a normal batch of barley. Somebody took a fondness to this girl. And so she's fluttering around. Where you been, Ruth? Who you been? I mean, whose field was you in? Who? What did he look like? What was he wearing? Was he old? Was he young? Was he tall? Was he short? Some of you ladies do that. And uh, Ruth says his name is Boaz. Boaz means in him is strength. And I believe Ruth knew to some degree what she was saying. I don't think she understood all the future would hold, but she knew she had found the man of her dreams. She says, it's Boaz. It's Boaz. Boaz is his name. We see the blessing declared verse number 20. I like this. Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath not left off his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said unto her, The man is near of kin unto us, one of our next kinsmen. Oh my, there's so many things to say. Naomi thought God forgot about her. You know, that's what that means when she says that, I believe she's talking about the Lord. If you believe different, that's fine. But she says, Blessed be he of the Lord, who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. She says, here, I thought God had forgot about me. Here, I thought God had forgot about Naomi. I thought, with all that I've been through, with all of my despair, with all of my hopelessness, I thought God had forgot about me. But she says, you know, God's not forgot about me. I may have backslid. I may have left Bethlehem. I may have gone down into Moab. I may have forgot God, but God never forgot about me. And she says to, to Ruth, this man, he's near of kin to us. Unless you wonder what Naomi's talking about, Naomi says, one of our next kinsmen. Can I, can I put it to you in hillbilly language? Naomi says, who is this whose field you've been gleaning in? All this barley. And Ruth says, Boaz is his name. And she says, oh, isn't God good? He's the marrying kind. <laughs> That's what she says. Oh, isn't God good? That Boaz, he's the marrying kind. Boaz, he's the one with the answers. Boaz, he's the nearest kinsman. Boaz, he has a right to redeem you, Ruth. Stay close to that Boaz character. We see the beckoning dictated, verse 21, Ruth the Moabitess said, He said unto me, Also thou shalt keep fast by my young men until they have ended all my harvest. That's, you know what she's saying? She's saying, and not just that, he wants to see me again. That's what she's saying. Not just that, he got my number. He wants to call me. He told me to stick around. He's got big plans for me. Oh, let me tell you, I'm glad for the day that somebody came to me with the gospel of Jesus Christ and said, God doesn't just have a passing fancy in you. He's the marrying kind. He's interested in you for the long term. and He's got big plans for you. Ruth says, I know where I'll be gleaning tomorrow. Verse 22, And Naomi said unto Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It's good, my daughter that thou goest out with his maidens, that they meet thee not in any other field. We see the benefit distinguished. You say, what do you mean? If Ruth had gone to any other field, you know what they would have said? They would have said, you know, that's old Ruth the Moabite. If she had gone to any other field, they would have said, you know, that's that old girl that Naomi drug up out of Moab with her. She's so unwanted. She's so unneeded around here. Naomi says, Ruth, you don't even know how good you've got it because you found a field where you're loved. You found a man that's interested in you. Ruth, you didn't have a chance 
but you found somebody that cares for you. It's a good thing because now that you're in his field, you're under his protection. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean under the end of barley harvest and of wheat harvest and dwelt with her mother-in-law. Oh, what a love story. What a love story. 